1: This is the Starship Sova, show 49. Everybody, welcome. Hello, and welcome to Starship Sova's Oral Delights on a Wednesday night. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audio book download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details. So yes, welcome to Oral Delights. And first off, an apology. <laughs> what the hell happened to the last show? Show 48 actually called it on the forums and on the blog. It was show 49. I got that wrong. And didn't it, for some reason, cut off right in the middle of Larry's prime outro. So I'm going to tack on again the back of the show, Larry's little outro that he did. The, hopefully the full version of it. I have no idea why that happened. Was it to do with length of size of the thing? I've put up bigger shows than that before, so I've just had no idea. And like I say, I was in France and I couldn't kind of sort it all out. Or I was actually going to France that day, I think, when I found out. So my apologies there. Larry, very, very sorry, sir. (laughs) I hope you can forgive us. So we are on to show 49. I'm going to stick it up though, <laughs> show 48, so it kind of looks okay on the on the, the kind of website and everything like that. We have poetry by Michael Trim, flash fiction, comes from A. Bertram Chandler. And we have another B.I.D. book review by Sean Q. Got our fact by our good friend Amy H. Sturgis. Main fiction comes from a fantastic new writer, one of the hot kiddies on the block. God seller, so hopefully you will enjoy everything we have to offer. So just before we get into Starship Sofa's oral delights, little shout out. If again this is the Starship Sofa's monthly regular call, anybody want to narrate or everybody think they could maybe handle narrating a story for the Starship Sofa? I have some loads of nice stories here. Please pop over and let me know if you want to have a go. Starships over at gmail.com always looking for narrators male female UK American so please drop us an email drop us an email if you have an idea for a little article for the show the Starships over oral delights you know you might have like a niche little thing that you want to talk about please by all means do that. So, again, I will just kind of drop a hint at the end of the show about narrators. Do you know what I mean? It's always nice just for me, kind of like a comfort zone. Do you know what I mean? To know I've got a kind of few narrators I can rely on there. So, if you want to have a go, please, like I say, drop us an email. So, we will crack on straight on with this week's show. First off, a little bit of pori The
2: Clockmaker's Wife by Michael Trim. His hands are meant for delicate work, a bevel here, a filigree there, and all the fine and intricate gears are made of bones and flesh and hair. She calmly stood, betrothed for life. She was now the clockmaker's wife. He turns the pulleys, skull weights on chains, depend from tiny hand-chiseled teeth, enamel white and fitted with care upon the spine spokes underneath she baked the bread the staff of life working as the clockmaker's wife he twists the hair in intricate knots then knits and weaves the calcitrant strands into a gyre the mainspring is done he stops and rests his bloody hands she cleaned the tools avoiding strife sworn to be the clockmaker's wife He works the leather, reticent flesh, that dried and tanned, embossed and inlaid, upon the framework he has begun, becomes the benchmark of his trade. She hunts the victims, wields the knife, born to be the clockmaker's wife. Don't
1: forget, all copyright is Michael Trim. Michael, thank you so much for this. Narration was by our great friend Diane Severson, and Diane has just done... Joan D. Vinge story, look out for that, coming soon. Diane, thank you so much. So we come on to Flash Fiction. Flash Fiction today comes from Arthur Bertram Chandler, better known as A. Bertram Chandler. Just A little heads up for Mr. Chandler, born March 28th, 1912, died June 6th, 1984, was an Australian science fiction author. He was born in Aldershot, England, and he was a merchant marine officer sailing the world in everything from tramp steamers to troop ships. He emigrated to Australia in 1956, becoming an Australian citizen. He commanded various ships in the Australian New Zealand Merchant Navies, and was the last master of the Australian aircraft carrier, HMS Melbourne. Chandler wrote over 40 novels and 200 works of short fiction. His most well-known is for the John Grimes novels and for the Rimworld series, which have a distinctly naval flavour. He won the Dittmar Awards for Best Short Story, The Bit Pill in 1971, and for three novels, False Fatherland 1969, The Bit Pill in 1975, and The Big Black Mark 1976. Narration today comes from my good friend, Mr. Dale Manley. Dale, thank you for this. It is really appreciated. So much, sir. Thank you. Again, if you want to drop David an email, please, by all means do, pop over to the front of the website. You will find it there. So, the Starship Sofa and her oral Delights presents...
3: UFO by Bertram Chandler It was not good flying weather. If it had been any worse, Captain Langren would have decided to ride it out overnight at the mooring mast in the hope that the next day would show an improvement. He had made such decisions in the past. His owners hadn't liked it. Neither had his passengers nor his crew. Come to that, he hadn't liked it himself. Ever since his appointment to command, he had prided himself on his ability to maintain his timetable. The people of Alice Springs, he'd say at least half seriously, could set their watches as his ship passed overhead, whilst the citizens of Colombo could do the same as his nose made contact with the mooring cone. There would be more watch-setting at Baghdad, Vienna, and finally London. He was a big man, Langren, solid, apparently stolid, with a tanned lined face under his thick gray hair that could have belonged to a farmer or a seaman, as well as to an airshipman. It was the face of a man ever conscious of the vagaries of the weather, always ready to counteract the effects of rain or snow. Rain, to him, had not been so much of a worry since the substitution of metal skins for the old fabric envelopes, but the accumulation of snow or ice could still cause a dangerous loss of buoyancy." Langren looked out and down from his control-room viewports to the harbor, to the great bridge with its suspension cables stretched in a graceful catenary between the twin towers on either shore, the lights strung along their length, lending an illusory aspect of frailty. Dusk, the captain thought, was the best time to see Sydney. The street lamps just coming on the harborside apartment towers randomly illuminating their tier upon tier of windows. On an evening such as this, the wind-driven gray veils of rain, the shifting, filmy translucence, added their own mystery. The ship shuddered slightly as her turbines drove her north and west through the rising, moisture-laden wind. But she would be safe enough, thought Langren, as long as there was no turbulence." Lightning blazed in the murky sky ahead. "'Thank God for helium, sir,' said the chief officer who had the watch. Langren laughed. "'You'd be surprised if you knew how many of our own cloth argued against its use, saying that hydrogen has that much more lift. And then the same people screamed about fire hazard when we started putting heating coils in the helium gas cells.'" He looked around the familiar control room at the tried and trusted instruments, at the two coxswains standing at their wheels, one watching the gyro-compass repeater, the other the altimeter. There was nothing to worry about except the weather, and it would have to worsen considerably before his continual presence and control was required. Two, as he well remembered from his own days as a watchkeeper, no officer likes to have the old man breathing down the back of his neck all the time, He said, "'All being well, we shall be over the Alice at oh six hundred hours tomorrow. Pass the word to the third and the second to adjust revs as required. It's in the night orders. Call me, of course, if we're making too much leeway, or if there's any sign of turbulence. Call me at five in any case. I shall be making the usual circuits of Ayer's Rock and Mount Olga after we've passed over Alice Springs.' he laughed, we have to give the customers their money's worth. "'According to the Met forecast,' said the chief officer, "'there won't be much to see this time. The monsoon's set in good and proper.' "'We shall see what we shall see, mister,' said Langren. He bade the watchkeepers good-night, and went aft to the observation lounge to have a few words with the passengers before retiring." "'Here's somebody who can bear me out,' cried the fat, florid man, sitting at one of the tables with three companions. "'In all your years in the air, Captain, you must have seen a flying cross.' "'I'm sorry to have to disappoint you,' said Langren. "'But UFOs have always avoided me.' "'Well, there are such things,' declared the scrawny, red-haired woman. "'All imagination,' stated the fat blonde. "'There may be something,' muttered her thin husband dubiously. "'There may be something,' agreed Langren. "'On the other hand, there may not be.' He extricated himself from the argument, made his rounds of the passengers, said his good-nights, and retired to his sleeping-cabin, abaft the control-room. He had no trouble getting to sleep. He trusted his ship and his officers. He trusted himself— and knew that he would instantly awaken if there were any break in the rhythmic pattern of the creakings and rustlings of the great dirigible, if there were the slightest faltering in the hum of the powerful gas turbines. He was called at 0500 hours. Some captains he well knew liked to be called about ten minutes or less before being required, but he was not one of them. He appreciated the pot of tea brought to him by the night steward for his leisurely consumption, and after the initial cup, there was the first pipe of the day. He showered then, and depilated with ample time for the cream to take full effect. Finally, refreshed internally and externally, he dressed in a freshly laundered grey uniform, and at last strolled forward to control, entering the compartment at precisely 05.50 hours. The two coxswains were standing watchfully at their wheels. The chief officer, binoculars to his eyes, was peering forward through the rain-streaked glass of the viewport. "'Good morning, sir,' he grunted. "'If it is a good morning.' "'It's the only one we've got,' said Langren. "'They'll be swimming in the Todd to-day,' said the chief officer.' Langren chuckled, visualizing the water swirling through that usually dry riverbed. He joined his officer at the forward window, took his stance at the starboard clear-view screen. He could see the sprawling township ahead and the bright beacon lights atop the mooring masts of the airport. He'd come in there often enough, before he had graduated from the interstate to the overseas services— Now, to him, it was just a mile post on the Sydney-London run. Nonetheless, he always exchanged salutations with the control officer as he passed over the city. He hesitated before he left the viewport to go to the transceiver. That blackness right ahead was somehow ominous, and the lightning rendering it had been a cascade of blue fire. Yet it was the possibility of turbulence that worried him most." "'City of Ballarat to Alice,' he said into the microphone. "'Do you read me?' "'Loud and clear, Captain,' came the cheery reply. "'You're bang on time, as usual. "'Our conditions west of you, Alice. "'Any turbulence?' "'No, Captain. "'This is just a dirty great rain depression. "'All the balloons launched from the stations have been going straight up, "'although they've had one hell of a struggle against this downpour.' "'Thank you, Alice.' Then to the chief officer, "'You can bring her round for the rock, mister.' He heard the quiet order, the helmsman's response, the clicking of the gyro-repeater. As he turned away from the transceiver, lightning blazed about the ship and brush discharge flared and crackled from every metal fitting in the control room. His heart almost stopped as he felt the wrench. He thought, "'God, she's breaking up!' But she was not, he realized. He should have felt relief. But the dread, the somehow irrational dread persisted. She was sliding through chaotic darkness at an impossible angle, through and across the normal dimensions of space and of time. Beyond the control room windows was a swirling nothingness, an emptiness that briefly was not empty." The chief officer shouted. The altitude coxswain screamed. The helmsman swung his wheel hard over, and the ship complained in every structural member. She was too big, too long, to submit to a violent alteration, of course, without protest. Lightning blazed again, and suddenly— There, through the viewports, was the familiar scene of the sprawling city with, on the hill, the skeletal shapes of the mooring masts, each tipped with its bright beacon light. "'City of
4: Balarat!'
3: came the frightened voice of the controller. "'What happened? You vanished!' "'Sir!' demanded the chief officer. "'Did you see it? A flying cross! I thought it was going to hit us!' "'Yes, I did see it,' admitted Langren slowly. "'A UFO. A flying cross. I know that sounds crazy, but it looked like the pictures I've seen of those old heavier-than-air flying machines that those two American brothers, uh, Ride or Reed or some name like that, were playing with years ago. But they never got properly off the ground.' White-faced, the captain of the Foker Friendship stared at his first officer. The first officer, equally pallid, stared back. "'It's bad enough often to fly in this weather,' said the captain at last, "'without being as near as, damn it, rammed by flying saucers.' "'It almost looked like an airship,' said the first officer diffidently. "'Sort of like the Hindenburg, one of them.' and there was some kind of badge painted on its nose. It could have been the Qantas flying kangaroo. The captain managed a shaky laugh, and I thought I was seeing things. A Qantas airship. I'd sooner believe in flying saucers. Airships never were, and never
1: will be, any good. And there you go. Thank you very much. Yeah Bertram Chandler. And thank you so much, Mr. Dale Manley, for a fantastic narration. Do join me again to listen to more of Dale's work. So this podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. And Audible is very keen, again, still to push Metatropolis. Now, I don't know if you know much about Metatropolis. Metatropolis is comprised of five interconnected stories. The first story, In the Forest of the Night by J. Lake, read by Michael Hogan, is available for a free download and accessible at www.audible.com Metapod. No credit card required, no geographical restrictions, and the free download is available to new and existing customers. The authors are, like I say, Jay Lake, Tobias Backell, Elizabeth Bear, John Scalzi and Carl Schrodner. Metatropolis is the future, a too-near future, and it's the creation of five of today's most popular and cutting-edge science fiction writers. It's got 2008 Hugo winners John Scalzi and Elizabeth Bear, Campbell Award winner Jay Lake, plus fan favourites Tobias Raquel and Carl Schrodner. Together they set the ground rules and develop the parameters of this shared universe. Each story is linked, but each one is a separate tale in itself. So do pop over to Audible.com and check out that free story. So it's time to invite Mr Sean Keogh over onto the sofa and for him to deliver one of his beardy book
0: reviews. Sean, sir. Hello and welcome to another beardy book review. This time I'd like to talk about a series of books that have been out for a little while, although the latest was only published in 2005, so it is fairly recent. Altered Carbon, Broken Angels, and Woken Furies by Richard Morgan. They contain some fairly amazing ideas. Imagine a world or a universe where neurotechnology has advanced to the point where your memories and thought processes, everything that makes you, you, can be downloaded and stored in a small electronic device called a cortical stack, embedded in your upper spinal column. You can effectively back up your personality, your entire mind, on a regular basis. So if your body wears out or gets damaged, you can have your cortical stack removed and inserted into a new body. This provides a form of immortality, at least for those who can afford it. It also has negative aspects. Why build prisons when a convicted criminal can have his stack removed so his body either dies or is reused? And his digital self can be injected into a virtual reality simulation, an electronic prison where he will have to serve his time. And of course, there are additional complications, things like a black market in bodies, and the effect of this technology on established religions and societies. Now, the bodies where do these new bodies come from, if they haven't been stolen? Well, alongside the cortical stack, advances in bioengineering have produced the ability to produce clones relatively easily, or even complete custom-built high-quality bodies with advanced features, and for those on a budget, strictly utilitarian, synthetic bodies with only basic functions. These replacement bodies are commonly called sleeves. Lastly, let's deal with interstellar travel. In this universe, the human race does not have faster-than-light travel, although they do have a form of faster-than-light communications, at least a bit faster, called needle casting. So how do you travel across the galaxy to all of these different human-occupied planets? Simple, you send off a conventional slower-than-light ship to the place you want to go to a fully automated ship, of course, as the journey would be likely to take a long time. When it arrives, it automatically constructs a needle-cast transceiver and a body synthesis system and signals that it is available and online. People's stored minds, which are just so much digital data, are then transmitted across the void to the ship where they are downloaded into new bodies or sleeves, and then they can get on with exploring and colonising the planet. There is more, such as virtual reality, nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, human-to-machine interfaces and much else, but that's too much to cover in a brief book review. Okay, so these are the most important points on the technological side, but what about the people themselves, and what about the social side of things? Well, in these three books, we follow the adventure of a man called Takeshi Kovacs. Once a member of an elite military unit of the United Nations Protectorate, which is in this series not exactly a benign organization, he was an envoy equipped with specialized mind training to enable him to fight at peak efficiency, even on a strange planet in an unfamiliar body. Remember the needle casting and the re That's how soldiers are transmitted around the galaxy. And the envoys are feared throughout the human settled parts of the galaxy because of their ferocious, brutal methods. Kovacs finds himself revived and inserted into a new body after many, many years in cold storage. At least his stack was in storage. He's been hired to do a job, a detective job, involving some of the super-rich citizens of this strange universe 500 years into our future. So, alongside Kovacs, we descend into the dark and dirty underbelly of this rather dystopian society. Yes, I know, another dystopian society. Um, I'm just a sucker for them, Okay. The human settled worlds seem to be controlled mostly by long-established semi-aristocratic families in a kind of technological fiefdom, with the usual many different layers of society, including various criminal organizations, arrayed beneath them. And in some cases the criminals are in charge, or at least closely associated with those in charge. I won't describe the actual story points, except to say that across the three books, Kovacs encounters many different characters, undertakes various missions, some covert, some overtly military, gets involved in high society and low, handles or encounters some pretty remarkable technology, including some created by a long-vanished, highly advanced race from Mars, and kills or maims an awful lot of people. The body count is very high, and Morgan writes highly graphic fight scenes, sometimes perhaps a little too graphic. At times, I was in danger of losing my lunch. But to be honest, it was no worse than the sometimes very graphic violence in some modern films, and at least with the books, the pictures are created in your own head, and so I guess you have the ability to self-censor and tone things down a little if you want to. There is also some sex here and there in the stories, but generally in sensible plot-supporting places. So, what did I think of these books? Well... When I first read Altered Carbon, I have to say, I was blown away by it. Highly intelligent, hard science fiction with tightly constructed storylines, believable characters, not always sympathetic or likeable characters, but you can accept them in the story. They aren't wooden and two-dimensional. Some very clever ideas, both on the technological side and also on the sociological makeup of the societies depicted, and some additional twists here and there. And for a first novel, I thought it was incredible. A lot of the feel of the books, especially the first and third ones, is rather noir. All the shady behaviour of characters and criminal activity, mysterious clues to be followed and so on. Morgan has put together a tour de force of action, adventure, mystery, violence, mayhem and technology, including in some cases the misuse of technology, and the second and third books in the series don't disappoint, which sometimes happens with sequels. Highly recommended, and on the beer review scale, I'd give the series as a whole an 8.5. It would have been a 9, but some of the violence was perhaps just a bit over the top. I'd suggest that if you can get hold of copies of these books, they've all been out in paperback for a while now, you do so and prepare for a damn good read. Thanks for listening. I'll be back again soon with another Beardy Book Review here on Starship Sofa.
1: Sean, thank you so much. Do keep them coming. So now we come on to a firm favorite of Oral Delights, Miss Amy H. Sturgis. Amy, what have you got to do?
5: Hello there. Today I would like to look back into genre history to talk about a specific magazine. Well, not exactly a magazine, but one issue of the magazine. Okay, not really one issue of the magazine, but one section of one issue of a magazine. But trust me, it's fascinating stuff. I recently was reading The Arkham Sampler, which was published in 1948 and 1949. There were eight issues altogether. And I came across something I knew I had to share with Starship Sofa listeners. The Arkham Sampler was published by Arkham House Publishers and edited by August Derleth. Durleth lived from 1909 to 1971 and was a friend of H.P. Lovecraft and is perhaps best known as his publisher and as a contributor to his Cthulhu Mythos. In fact, the term Cthulhu Mythos was penned by August Durleth. Lovecraft never used that term. Because Lovecraft was not widely published during his lifetime, after his death, August Durleth and his fellow friend Donald Wondre got together and created Arkham House Publishers. Arkham, taking the name from H.P. Lovecraft's fictional town of Arkham, in which was Miskatonic University, the fictional school, and in which many of Lovecraft's works were set. In 1948, Arkham House Publishers launched the Arkham Sampler, which, as I said, ran for eight issues, and was mostly focused on works of fantasy and horror, But, in winter of 1949, there was an all-science fiction issue. Today, this issue reads like a who's who. There's reprinted work by Jules Verne, new work by A.E. Van Vogt, Ray Bradbury and Clark Ashton Smith, reviews by Fritz Leiber, just a tremendous volume. But the thing that interests me most is the opening symposium that leads off this all science fiction issue. It's called a basic science fiction library. And of course, by its nature, it's referring to a basic science fiction library in the year 1949. For this issue, August Derleth composed a dream team of science fiction minds to weigh in on their top 20 books that they believed every science fiction reader should have in his or her personal library. It just makes my mouth water to think of the terrific lineup that he got. For example, he brought together six well-known authors of science fiction stories, Dr. David H. Keller, Lewis Padgett, P. Schuller-Miller, Theodore Sturgeon, A. E. Van Vogt, and Donald Wandre. Also professional magazine editors, including Sam Merwin, Jr. of Thrilling Wonder Stories, and Paul L. Payne of Planet Stories as well as special editors like Everett Blyler, who compiled the exhaustive Checklist of Fantastic Literature, and A. Langley Searles, editor of one of the best of the fan magazines at the time, fantasy commentator. Derleth also invited two well-known science fiction aficionados to give their opinions as well, Sam Moskowitz and Forrest J. Ackerman. So put together, this really created a great slice of the genre at the time. The only people missing from the party were John W. Campbell of Astounding Science Fiction and Draymond A. Palmer of Amazing Stories, both of whom were invited to participate but chose not to do so. I found it really fascinating to go through and see what books received the most votes from these participants, and so I thought I'd run down the list— Some of these will be instantly familiar to you, but others might not, and so I thought I'd also pick out a couple that were perhaps lesser known today and give a little information about those. So, without further ado, what books did the participants choose as the most important components of a well-read science fiction fan's library in 1949? The first place received nine votes, and I don't think anyone could really argue with this. It's seven famous novels by H.G. Wells. Pretty much one-stop shopping for the best science fiction by Wells. This particular omnibus edition included The Time Machine, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Invisible Man, The War of the Worlds, The First Men in the Moon, In the Days of the Comet, and The Food of the Gods. Okay, fair enough there. In second place, with seven listings, were two books. One was Last and First Men, a story of the near and far future, the 1930 classic by Olaf Stapledon. Tony has already discussed this book in a previous episode of Starship Sofa. It's unprecedented scale as it describes the history of humanity from the present across two billion years and 18 human species. A fascinating novel that is still well known and read and taught today. The second was Brave New World, the 1932 novel by Aldous Huxley, which is probably familiar to a lot of science fiction fans the dystopian satire set in London of the year 2540. Certainly, that book is still well-known, read, and taught today. And in fact, Ridley Scott is in the process of making a new film based on the novel. Three books came in tied at third place with six votes each from the participants. The first was the short stories of H.G. Wells, just proving that guys in 1949 really loved H.G. Wells. Okay, he deserved it, and still does. The second was an anthology called Adventures in Time and Space, edited by R.J. Healy and J.F. McComas. It was originally published in 1946. The good news is that it was re-released in 1977 by Ballantine Books, so it is possible to find a used copy without having to go and sell all those ace doubles you have lying around the house in order to afford it. It really is an impressive collection, bringing together stories that originally appeared in pulp magazines, mostly but not exclusively astounding science fiction. And all of the works in it are now considered to be classics. Just to give you an idea, I'll go down a few of the works that are included in this 997-page anthology. Robert Heinlein's Requiem, John W. Campbell's Forgetfulness, Henry Kuttner and C.L. Moore's The Proud Robot, A.E. Van Vogt's Black Destroyer, Alfred Bester's Adam and No Eve, Isaac Asimov's Nightfall, Anthony Boucher's QUR. You get the idea. The other work that came in at third place is also one that Tony has mentioned before in a previous episode, and that is Slan by A.E. Van Vogt. Which was originally serialized in a standing science fiction in 1940 and subsequently published in hardcover in 1946 The Story of a Fictional Race of Super Beings. Two books tied for fourth place with five votes each. The first is The World Below by S. Fowler Wright. Now, this one may have fallen off the radar a bit, so I thought I'd pause for a moment and discuss it. It's a novel that was first published in 1929. And as Sam Maskowitz says, it is pretty much as close to fantasy as science fiction can logically go. It's dark work, and a really interesting one, concerning a man who travels 500,000 years into the future with the aid of a time machine. There he comes across a race of beings that are intelligent and furry, called the Amphibians, and with their help, he goes through the planet and is eventually captured by super-intelligent beings called Dwellers who direct the destinies of that world. Forrest Ackerman compares it to Last and First Men because of the sheer scope of the storytelling. This is big, epic stuff. A.E. Van Vogt also voted for this and pointed out that it's unusual for its view half a million years into the future. The other book in fourth place is another anthology, Strange Ports of Call, which was edited by August Derleth, the same editor of The Arkham Sampler, and it was first published in 1948. This anthology drew from a more diverse background than Adventures in Time and Space and also pulled more heavily from the weird fiction tradition part of which naturally evolved into a strain of science fiction. Strange Ports of Call drew on works from Blue Book, Amazing Stories, Weird Tales, Science and Invention, Astounding Stories, Coronet, The New Review, The Black Cat, Thrilling Wonder Stories, Wonder Stories, Comet, The Saturday Evening Post, Collier's Weekly, and Planet Stories. So you can see there quite a varied background. And let me tell you, if I had this volume to curl up with on a rainy afternoon, I would be one happy camper. Listen to some of the stories included. The Crystal Bullet by Donald Wandre, At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft, Mars on the Ether by Lord Dunsany, The God Box by Howard Wandre, Mr. Bauer and the Adams" by Fritz Leiber, The Crystal Egg by H.G. Wells, Call Him Demon by Henry Cutner. Master of the Asteroid by Clark Ashton Smith, Guest in the House by Frank Bilknapp Long, Million Year Picnic by Ray Bradbury, Blunder by Philip Wiley, and the list goes on. Very impressive. Last but not least, in fifth place, each with four votes from the participants, were four different novels. The first was To Walk the Night by William Sloan. This book was celebrated both by science fiction readers and horror readers, and remains in lists of must-read books, although it doesn't receive a lot of love these days, a lot of attention. It was originally published in 1937, and is based on the premise that a brilliant young mathematician commits suicide after marrying a woman he begins to think has otherworldly connections, and it's plays out as a mystery, as a horror, a gothic work, uh, but also definitely science fiction. The next novel is more familiar to mainstream audiences, and that is The Lost World, the 1912 book by Arthur Conan Doyle concerning an expedition to South America where prehistoric animals survive. The next is another book by Olaf Stapledon. Again, Tony has mentioned him in the Olaf Stapledon episode. This the 1944 novel Sirius, the existential work in which a scientist creates a super-intelligent dog. The final book was sort of a lost classic that I'm happy to say has been brought back in a 2004 and still in print version by Bison Frontier's The Imagination Series with the University of Nebraska Press, and that is Philip Wiley's 1930 novel Gladiator, This is an important work for several reasons, one of which is that many scholars claim it inspired Superman. I should also mention Philip Wiley wrote some other important works, including When Worlds Collide in 1933 with Edwin Balmer, which did inspire the comic strip Flash Gordon, and the classic 1951 science fiction novel The Disappearance, which deals, among other things, with issues of gender and sexual orientation. But back to Gladiator. The story concerns a scientist who creates a serum that he hopes will make mankind better by granting humans the strength of an ant and the leaping ability of a grasshopper. While his wife is pregnant with their son, he injects her with this serum, and lo and behold, the baby that is born is super strong, super fast, and yes, bulletproof. So, there you have a quick and dirty tour of the books considered to be necessary for a basic science fiction library by a who's who of science fiction personalities in 1949. Just to recap, they are Seven Famous Novels by H.G. Wells, Last and First Men by Olaf Stapledon, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, The Short Stories of H.G. Wells by H.G. Wells, Adventures in Time and Space, edited by R.J. Healy and J.F. McComas. Slan by A.E. Van Vogt. The World Below by S. Fowler Wright. Strange Ports of Call, edited by August Derleth; To Walk the Night by William Sloan. The Lost World by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sirius by Olaf Stapleton. And Gladiator by Philip Wiley. To put everything in context, I'd like to end by reading a passage from Dr. David H. Keller's preface to his votes for the Basic Science Fiction Library. Many readers of the pulp magazines believe that science fiction is a comparatively new form of literature, conceived by Jules Verne, cared for in adolescence by A. Conan Doyle and H.G. Wells, and brought into vigorous maturity by the editorial ministrations of Messrs. Gernsback, Palmer, and Campbell. Such a concept will be entertained only by those who have not studied the relationship between storytelling and mankind. Since earliest days, each generation has had its dreamers, men not content with the actualities of life, but capable of visioning adventures in time and space, thus traveling in fancy to faraway lands and the spice islands of the Indies. Dimly remembering the Garden of Eden, they told of future utopias. Ancestral memories, oft-repeated folklore, fantastic dreams became stories filled with giants held captives in bottles, birds carrying Sinbad to the Valley of the Diamonds, Jonah's memorial sea voyage in the whale, Dante's tour through Hades, escorted by Virgil, Milton's backward glance into a lost paradise, and Bunyan's description of a pilgrimage to heaven. There is nothing new in literature. Modern authors have simply taken the old tales and re-embellished them to please modern readers. Such tales are now called science fiction, but the Greeks had another name for them. With such tales, authors of the past entertained their little audiences in the valleys of India or on the Arabian sands long before the days of pulp magazines and the silver screen. And with that, I hope you've enjoyed this month's installment of my look back into genre history.
1: Amy, thank you so much for that. When I listened to that article there, that was so up my street. That's exactly what kind of the Starship Sofa was kind of fundamentally built on. Kind of all these kind of old fiction writers there. So Amy, that was just a pleasure to listen to. Thank you so much. So we come on to the main part of the fiction tonight, by one of the the hottest sci-fi writers out there now. This one, keep an eye on this guy because he is gonna go for God seller. Canadian who's been living in South Korea since 2002. The story first appeared in Asimov's in the October-November double issue 2008. First got in touch, or first kind of discovered gold seller in my little Asimov books, and it was the story about it here now that just I thought was fantastic, really powerful, gripping story. Then, coming, actually coming back from my trip to France, I had an old copy of Asimov's, and... In there was another story by Godseller, which just was fantastic. I emailed God straight away and said, can I have that one as well? And looking for the Starship Sova, God said, no problem. So look out for a new Godseller story coming soon. Do pop over to Godseller's website. Links on the main site. This is the one of the writers that Asimov's is saying is one of the kind of hot new talents out there. So please go and check out Godseller's work. Narration today comes from Mr. David Munger. David is a writer and actor from Chicago area. He has been trained in programmes at the I.O. Theatre and the Annoyance Theatre and has participated in the prestigious conservatory programme The Second City. David was the primary voice talent for the now-defunct Twilight Tales podcast. <laughs> So the Starship Suva is proud to present The Lumar No More by Gord Seller.
4: What I wanted was to catch the slate grey of the ocean and the pale forlorn bergs floating in it, to capture that coldness and distance that haunted everyone here, but especially the Mozambicans. But the gentle pinks and oranges of the toner-choked sunrise kept growing, deepening, And I couldn't drive it out. They were ruinously stunning, those rich hues brought out by all the gunk pumped into the atmosphere. It was the kind of scene amateur photographers had been snapping every sunrise and sunset since the first big stacks had gone online. Useless to me. I was still fiddling with the bug cam settings, jumping from one feed to the next, when Ngunu found me. Beautiful, isn't it, Mr. Illingsford? he said. With that accent of his, I couldn't tell whether he was aiming for sarcasm. Yeah, but we don't want beautiful, I said, without removing my cam goggles. I left a couple of the nearby cams running, in case he said anything interesting. We want the gray and cold. It's a psychological effect. Pretty landscape lessens people's empathy. They'll think, what's so bad about Africans having to flocomb here? I gestured east toward the Greenland coast. "'its majestic glacial cliffs imposing bergs floating in the foreground. "'That's beautiful,' they'll think when they look at that. "'People won't see dying glaciers, just white majesty.' "'White majesty,' he echoed with an ironic laugh "'and handed me a plastic mug of coffee. "'Black. No sugar, I figured. "'Bitter. A little burned, probably. "'Thanks,' I said, and sipped it. "'I was right.' I sipped a little more, watched the brightly colored tugs all around, hurrying after bergs, slowly chugging them off to some hydro-tanker. Around us, parka-clad Africans hurried about the deck of Nugunu's tug, yelling to one another in Portuguese and Kiswahili. "'How would you and your men get into ice salvage, Nugunu?' I tried not to sound too impatient. It wasn't just my curiosity. Making a documentary is storytelling.' and I had only a vague idea of what story I'd been hired to tell. Gunu just smiled and said, What do you mean? I bought a permit, my friend, that's all. It's good because there aren't many good business open to people like us. It was a non-answer, and he knew it. I caught myself searching his face for those other long-ago faces of his. The shell-shocked kid. "'an abandoned child soldier who'd been found in a ditch "'and brought to the clinic cot in the Lichinga refugee camp. "'That was the face I remembered best, "'the one I'd snapped a shot of that had ended up on the cover of Time. "'My most famous photograph, "'and probably the reason he'd offered me this gig. "'It had turned eleven-year-old Ngunu "'into the world's most raging guilt trip for almost a week.' Or the angry young man I'd seen on the CNN World webcast in Singapore, with his angry, intense eyes staring out of the hotel's wall sized display at me, cajoling his fellow Mozambicans to rise up and crush the government man, the natural gas and deep oil miners, the Chinese and American and European mosquitoes sucking Mozambique's blood away. We must rise up, my brothers, be men and smash them! "'how I'd squeezed Laura's hand when I heard him and said, "'Oh, my God, it's the kid, my time-cover.' "'I saw traces of those other Ngunus, "'but he was so much older, calmer, quieter. "'Where has your rage gone?' I foolishly wondered. "'You know what I mean,' I said, shaking my head. "'You were a general at twenty. "'You've got powerful friends. "'You could be president of Mozambique someday if you want. "'So why are you salvaging eyes with these kids?' Ungunu exhaled a thick draft of steam "'and closed his eyes for a moment. "'Without opening them, he said, "'President, of what? "'Have you seen what's left of my country these days? "'It hasn't rained in eleven years. "'Anyway, what good are presidents?' "'He opened his eyes, wide, intense. "'I was glad I'd left my cams running. "'They get to skim a little money for a while, "'but they always have to die. "'Bang! One night. Heart attack. "'It's never really a heart attack, though. "'Bang!' Nugunu said, "'slamming his hand onto the railing of the tug. "'And he looked across the sea to the west. "'Me, when I die, it will be for something worthwhile.' "'Then he smiled.' Okay, I said, and decided to change the subject. So what are we doing now? Looking for a big berg? Today, Nagunu said, staring off at the other busy tugs. No, there's something happening big up north. Today we will go north. The men were wary. Each refused to give me a tour below deck's but a few of them were friendly enough. One old trick of the trade helped. I'd lock the controls and get someone else to wear my cam goggles during the interview. That way, they relaxed enough for me to coax decent interviews out of a couple of them, the ones who spoke English. Rafael Locondo especially. He was first mate, a close friend of Ungunu's from way back, and his story had been downright moving. I realized during his interview that if I could just get the right archival footage—buy, bribe, whatever it took—this documentary might even have a shot at being award-worthy. Not that awards would make the world care. A lifetime of making award-worthy reports on one bloody mess after another had taught me that people don't even get shocked anymore. They'd see the documentary, or download it at least— Crowds would clap at some festival or other, comment like mad on the website, some pop star would start a foundation, and a couple of newspaper reports might get written on poor flowcombers. And then they'd all go on with their lives. Hell, I would go on with my life, too, after I finished it. So how could I blame them? And there was Laura's voice in my head, clear as a klaxon. What she said to me that night in Jaipur, in the shadow of ACT's half-built dimmer stack, the city full of billboards with their pie-in-the-sky promises in several languages advertising how the toner from the stack, a blend of hypoallergenic specially designed particulate matter tuned to the needs of the local climate, was going to save our broiling world. Then I realized, there on that tub of Ngunus, that Laura was still right. I had to do what I was doing now. What else could I do? I shoved Laura's sad eyes out of my mind, along with the eerie pale pink walls of the city, and forced my thoughts back to the problem of figuring out how to make the world give a shit about Ngunu's men, their families, their lake, their shattered world. Who would care about a few black Africans in a gigantic tugboat salvaging icebergs off the coast of Greenland? People had mortgages. Their alternative fuel stocks were pogo sticking up and down as the new climatech companies were diving headfirst into the market. China was playing tough guy again. Anyway, everyone loves a toner choked sunset. How can anything so beautiful be bad? And the emissions were helping slow down warming, at least in the northern hemisphere. Hell, too few people were even allergic to the stuff for anyone, even governments, to muster much objection. I watched Lokondo smoking a quick cigarette with a couple of crewmen, their hoods pulled back so they could see one another's faces. The world would look at them and say, That's not a plight. That's a job. People who flew to the other side of the earth once a month for meetings or conferences would think they knew what it felt like to be far from everything they loved. But they wouldn't. They wouldn't know the cold, the bob of the tug, the endless, uncrossable distance. Could I make them feel that? Landscape, maybe, I thought, looking out to sea. The murky, toner-dimmed sky hung above, faint clouds a grimy off-white. Greenland was just a distant white strip on the eastern horizon. To the west, the distant, gloomy silhouette of an offshore mining rig "'hunched down against the sea. "'Closer by, an enormous berg drifted slowly out to sea to melt, "'like a forgotten country drifting off the map, "'with only the tug chasing behind to connect it to the world. "'But that wouldn't be enough. "'Scenery wouldn't make people really care. "'Perhaps nothing would, I half thought, "'just as a loud voice suddenly exploded from the ship's loudspeakers, "'barking crackly Portuguese.' Ngunu's voice. The men hurried below decks, their order and discipline astonishing. What's going on? I asked, when Lokondo rushed past, wondering whether we were about to hit the berg. Go to Ngunu, Lokondo shouted, pointing toward the captain's compartment before rushing off in the other direction. I tore through my cam goggles interface menus, visually tagging random crewmen and sending cams flittering after them as they disappeared below decks. I sent a few more beetle cams crawling toward the tug's outer hull and then rushed to Ngunu's boxy console compartment, almost joyful. Finally, something was happening. "'Brace yourself,' Ngunu shouted as I arrived at the control room." He'd said it into the ship's calm, in Portuguese, but between covering water wars in Mozambique and the rainforest Coca insurgencies in Brazil, that was one of the Portuguese phrases I'd learned to react to without thinking. I opened my mouth to ask what was happening, but I never got a chance. The explosion came almost immediately, with a massive spray of water, steam, and flames bursting from the side of the tug, and the sweet, gassy stink of boiling methanol curdled the air." Smoke poured up from the tug's starboard hull, and shouts rang out below decks. Ngunu screamed desperately into his radio, Requesting help! Help us! We have men here! No lifeboat! Permission to dock! Please! Over! I wondered what dock he could mean for just a moment, and then realized the moment was an audience sympathy goldmine. This demanded conscious camera work. I cycled through cam views in my left goggle, keeping my right eye on the running capture of Ngunu as best I could, but what I saw in the left goggle distracted me. The men below decks were still yelling, but the scene was far from chaotic. Down in the smoky cargo holds, most of the men stood calm, lined up in their work uniforms, bags on the shoulders, unpacking crates. They were stuffing guns big guns into their shoulder bags and had that steely look i recognized from the faces of children and men about to rush into battle the same look i'd seen on ngunu's face on tv years ago demanding a revolution ngunu must have seen the shock on my face in my staring eyes i'm sorry but our regulations are a monotone voice said over the radio Gunu began yelling again as he tapped the touchscreen piloting interface. The tug changed course for the huge mining rig I'd glimpsed earlier, no longer so distant. The red logo for the ACT Corporation grew visible, vivid against the gray of the rig's walls, the gray of the sea and sky. When Gunu finally turned to face me, I didn't get to say much. You... This is an emergency, he hollered into the radio with a slight shake of his head. Please help us, he yelled. But he kept those calm, blazing eyes of his steady on mine even as the cloud of black smoke thickened behind him. His gaze did not soften during the long silence that followed. He saw the questions in my eyes, but he did not answer them. He just watched me listening the radio mic in his hand. Finally, The guy in the rig responded. Permission granted, the poor bastard said. As the tug pulled up close to the dock, a crowd of parka-clad rig workers leaped on board before even the tug's robotic clamps had fastened to the submerged docking rings. "'Where is everyone?' one hollered. "'Below decks!' Ngunu hollered. "'Fighting the fire!' "'Fire crew number one, get on it!' the same man yelled, and several others, hauling fire extinguisher backpacks with big red ACT logos on the back, rushed down into the lower decks. "'Heaven help me. I knew those men were going to die. But I didn't say anything. I just looked at M'Gunu, and he grabbed my arm. The force was crushing. "'Trust me,' he whispered into my ear. "'This is the story of a lifetime.' An old reporter once told me that when someone promises you the story of a lifetime, you should refuse it, no questions asked. The story of the lifetime is almost always a horror, he said, and reporting it taints you, sometimes even just seeing it. I watched the fire crew die in my left goggle. They scrambled down the halls, leaping over the occasional crewmen they found collapsed on the floor or coughing. One of my bug cams flitted after them all the way to the fire. They began spraying containment gel on the flames when suddenly a door slammed behind them. Two of the three stopped spraying. One of them managed to turn to try to see what was happening. Not one of them saw the grenade before it exploded. Ngunu's men used air-powered guns so quiet that I only heard them through the audio feeds from my cams. Within minutes, all of the men from the rig were either dead or squirming like worms, gagged and bound in plastic cuffs on the floors of the tug's hallways. I stood there, waiting, terrified. Jump-cutting feeds from one bug cam to another was all that kept me calm. "'Jump!' Static was all that streamed back from the burnt cam in the grenade room. "'Jump!' Locondo hurried down the tug's inner hallways with two of his men, kicking prisoners in the ribs and asking whether they had sub-clearance. "'Kick! Kick! Kick!' They shook their heads over and over. "'No! No! No! Kick! Yes!' "'Great!' Locondo said. The prisoner flinched. "'We need you!' The African grabbed him by the shoulders and, with a little help from another of Ngunu's soldiers, hauled the man to his feet. He was tall, a blond Scandinavian, arms bound behind his back, defiant, scowling. "'I won't help you,' he growled. "'Fine,' Lokondo said. "'Your choice.' Then he raised a pistol to the man's head. "'Security choppers are on the way,' the blonde snapped. "'They'll be here in ten minutes, and—' "'Yes, yes, good!' "'Lokondo said, gagging the man again "'and shoving him towards the stairs to the main deck. "'Jump! A view of the deck from above, "'a man standing behind another man, "'reaching gently toward him. "'And then there was a hand on my shoulder, "'and I realized I was seeing myself. "'The hand didn't move. "'I turned to find Ngunu. "'Are you recording, brother?' he asked quietly. "'I nodded, trying to hide my nervousness. "'Ngunu was a different man than I would set sail with that morning. "'I couldn't help but both fear and admire his guts. "'Ngunu smiled. "'Good,' he said. "'This is a very big day. "'Today history will change forever, my friend.' "'He nodded out to the waves for me to look. "'An enormous form was surfacing out there, "'like Leviathan from the depths. "'After a moment I realized that it was a submarine.' I focused my goggles' direct cams and a couple of hull-hugging crawler cams onto it and zoomed. Through the streaks of water trickling back into the ocean shone the bright red ACT logo, same as on the rig. The sub turned slowly and drifted towards the deck, and the impression was somehow ghostly. The lurking Dutchman. Still recording, I switched my left goggle cam view back below decks. Jump. Locondo hunched behind the blond man. Behind them a couple of crewmen crouched silently. Further down the hall a group of men were hauling up a wooden crate a couple of meters long. A drab ray of sunlight shone down onto Locondo's dark, angry face and he whispered to his men a single word. Wait. It took less than a minute. Once the sub's ramp clanged down across the gap and on to the dock, the hatch hissed open. A couple of muttering, rumple-suited young men, just assistants, emerged bearing briefcases and computer gear. They picked their way across the ramp to the dock, staring in obvious disgust at the flaming tug. Ngunu leaped from the tug to the dock and hurried past them, pistol in hand. They yelped and flinched backward. When I hurried up onto the dock after him, they dropped their equipment and retreated to the rig facility's main entrance, staring at me with terror in their eyes. By then, Ngunu had been spotted. He was scrambling for the hatch, which was about to snap shut again. He caught it with his free hand and fought to keep it open. Roaring from the strain, he glanced back at me with wild eyes. "'Help me!' he yelled." It was the voice of a man who knew what it was to see death, to fail, to lose everything. A haunted man. I did. Whether it was panic or hope, or perhaps it was sympathy, I don't know. Maybe it was all of them at once. As I ran over, I thought, oh my God, I'm going to go to prison for this. Yet there they were, my hands clinging to the lip of the hatch, dragging it up. There was my voice shouting drowned out by an awful familiar shriek it was a sonic weapon i felt bile rising in my throat my guts going watery i fought to hold on longer didn't have to ngunu gritted his teeth rammed his pistol through the crack in the hatchway and began shooting the hatch swung suddenly open hard and knocked me back on my ass there i stayed in shock not even bothering to jump-cut through different cam views. Ngunu's men, many now in army fatigues with cheap Singaporean automatics cradled in their arms, grenades sprouting from bandoliers like a harvest of deadly fruit, poured along the dock and on to the sub, straight into the open hatchway. Even running, they seemed so orderly. Passing with his blonde, gagged prisoner at gunpoint, Lokondo smiled and nodded. Gunu beamed at me. Then I realized that I had crossed over from filmmaker to accomplice. Terrorist. Criminal. He thanked me sincerely before yelling past me in Portuguese. I followed his gaze for a moment. A trio of his men were on the dock, tearing open the long crate. The shooting inside the sub continued for many long seconds, followed by a chorus of screams and yells. I switched my left goggle to the cam flittering above the tug and saw myself sitting there, staring dumbfounded at the open hatch as the last of Ngunu's foot-soldiers rushed through it. On the dock, the men had affixed electromagnetic clamps of some kind to the sub's hull and were hauling something long and heavy from the crate. It was riveting, Ungunu standing there, calm, powerful, commanding his soldiers. The shot "'was brilliant. "'My confidence surged. "'Whatever else happened, "'this was going to be a hell of a documentary, "'if I lived long enough to make it. "'Inside!' "'Gunu yelled at me, "'the gun still in his hand. "'Heaven help me, "'I did as I was told.' "'Now, now, my friends, "'the whole is fine,' "'Gunu hollered at the chattering, "'terrified men and women.' We are using rubber bullets. We are not as stupid as you think, huh? They were a mess, these terrified suits, crouched on the floor, hands on their heads, and mascara smudged. Tears and sweat ran down their faces, shock-eyed and stunned. Their broken phones and smashed net gadgets were piled in one corner. Ten enormous security thugs lay slumped on the luxurious red carpeting some were bound and gagged others dead i sent cameras flitting and crawling about the cabin scanning each and every face a few were vaguely familiar rich famous climatech people europeans mostly mr fallestad Gunu proclaimed as if welcoming an old acquaintance please get up the suits turned "'staring at an older, bald-headed man crouching among them, "'and something clicked in my head. "'Halvor Follestahl, the CEO of ACT, "'the world's biggest climate-control tech venture. "'The inventor of the dimming stacks, clogger of the skies. "'When Follestahl didn't move, "'one of Ungunu's men stepped in among the crowd "'and hauled him to his feet. "'Please,' he begged, "'I don't know what you want.' ''Of course not, Mr. Follestow,'' Gunnu snapped. ''That's why we're here today, to tell you.'' Gunnu laughed, and the other soldiers chuckled, too. This terrified the suits even more. Men with guns, laughing. Another chorus of whimpers followed. ''We want the monsoons back,'' Gunnu said over the noise.
1: ''The,
4: the monsoons?'' ''Yes,'' "'Ngunu said slowly, as if to a mentally handicapped child. "'The monsoons! You've heard of them? Big rains? "'Oh, yes, you don't have monsoons in Norway, right?' "'I—' Follestal faltered. "'I don't understand.' "'Something thumped loudly against the hull, "'and everyone there realized the same thing. "'Security had arrived.' "'Hope flashed across Follestal's face.' "'Take us down!' Gunu shouted, and the command was relayed out into the hall by one of the men. "'Now!' he added, loudly enough, that no relay seemed necessary. Almost immediately I felt that slightly odd sensation of sinking. The suits were shivering and weeping again, and Folistal slumped forward. "'How did you know we were taking this tour today?' a horrified woman in a black pantsuit asked. She sounded German, and I would have sworn she was some politician I'd seen before. Ngunu ignored her. "'Let's go, Folistal. We have some questions for you.' Then he nodded at me and said softly, "'Come along, brother. Time to earn your paycheck.' "'I've never heard of this Agrabi fellow,' Folistal said, shaking his sweaty, shiny, painted head." Gunu faked his surprise badly. Really? Tunisian scientist. Lady, not a fellow. Used to work for you. You sued her, and... ACT's a big company. Many people used to work for me. He coughed, looked at one of my cameras, and added, But anyway, she's wrong. There's not a shred of evidence that the sunlight filtering achieved with our toner emissions have any effect on patterns of precipitation. But we know that they have achieved a significant contribution to stemming the tide of global warming that threatens us all. He sounded like he was rattling off ad copy, evasive and nervous. It was bizarre, maybe a stress reaction, but great footage. Now, if you'll... The more you lie and change the subject, the more dog shit my cameraman has to cut, Gunu snapped, his face radiating photogenic rage, broken and defiant all at once. I watched, rapt, through my goggles. "'Everyone knows about the link between your toner stacks and drought. Dimming the sun is fine. It slows down the warming. But you killed the monsoons. Everyone knows that.' "'That's not proven,' Follastal insisted. "'The evidence is too scanty and controversial. Then why did you cancel the stack projects in Australia?' Gunu shouted the word why so harshly that even Manek Follisdall flinched. And why did the monsoon stop completely after the big stacks in Spain and France and Morocco were finished? You can't blame that on—Agrebi says it's the tona, that it gets into the clouds and reacts with the water, bleeds out more aerosols and gases that cause the water to condense differently so it rains less often— so you can keep the clouds big and reflective especially with the local blends coming from the stacks south of the equator she showed me studies many studies and computer models Ngunu said she's a scientist we have scientists too Follestal grumbled before Ngunu could snap at him I said yes in your pocket half of them are the same bastards who worked for big oil thirty years ago nobody trusts them and you know it Follestal frowned hard, clearing his throat to speak. I didn't let him. As far as the majority of the scientific community is concerned, I said, the toner stacks have brought drought to Africa. Isn't that so? That's a baseless overstatement, Follestal said. Gunu lifted his pistol, aiming it at the CEO's heart and ground his teeth. Follestal eyed the gun and raised his hands a little. Uh, Yes, some scientists think that. Some? Gunu cleared his throat, tensing the hand, holding the gun very slightly. I zoomed in carefully on Folistal's face to keep the gun out of the videos. Hands down! Quit lying, Gunu said, moving the gun closer to Folistal's chest. I almost smiled then. After all those years looking for a way to make businessmen quit lying and admit the truth, And here it was, really so very simple. I almost wished I'd thought of it before. Follastal frowned and lowered his hands. Okay, many respected scientists blame it on our stacks, but others say it's mostly the atmospheric salting pumped out by Sodion International or Aeroclimact's stratospheric gassing program. We're not the only company working in the dimming industry. We're competing with dozens of... a soft click... The safety on Gunu's pistol. Follestal nodded. But yes, there may be some evidence of possible, significant, undesirable side effects apparently caused by the particulate emitted by our toner stacks. Follestal sighed dramatically. Look, no solution's perfect. I don't see you Africans giving up fossil fuel-based industrialization. What are we supposed to do? There's a price for saving the world. Where is this world you saved? Ungunu said, lowering his gun. When I was a little boy, we had schools in my country. I went to a school built for us, for free, by a Chinese oil company. We asked our teacher whether the toner stacks would save us. He said yes, of course, told us to pray for you. Now we don't even have a country left. We have millions dead. Ungunu leaned forward, his voice suddenly quiet. "'focused as the point of a needle as he spoke. "'I can see them, right now, looking at me, asking me, "'when will the rain they promised finally come? "'You said the rain would come again next year or the year after. "'It's been thirteen years now. "'Lake Nyasa is gone, gone. "'The fish are gone. "'What fucking world have you saved? "'All your bastards have given us is Duluma.' Do you even know what that word means, Duluma? Gunu asked, his whole body tense, barely containing what he felt. Rage. I realized it was surging through me, too. I'd forgotten how it felt, to want to strangle a man with his tie or beat his head against a wall and roar at him. I couldn't remember what Duluma meant, but I wanted to crush Follestal's throat over it. "'It's Swahili. It means injustice,' Gunus snapped, and then went silent. "'I recognized the word suddenly. "'It had come into widespread political use "'when I'd been in East Africa during the freshwater wars. "'Anxiously, I asked Follestal, "'Assuming ACT's Eurasian and North American stacks "'are shown to be responsible for the droughts in Africa and Latin America, "'what is the company going to do for the affected countries?' "'Folestal swallowed quietly. "'I need to discuss that with our legal advisors before,' he said. "'Come on, if it's your fault, what are you willing to do?' "'The gun jabbed deeper into Folestal's chest. "'I suppose,' he said, "'we would clean it up. "'But that will never be proven.' "'Gunu cleared his throat and raised the pistol again, "'drawing back one fist. "'He's right. "'Even though it's true, we'll never have enough proof. "'But that doesn't matter.' "'We've got another solution.' "'He hesitated for a moment, and then turned to me and said, "'Cameras off.' "'When I nodded that they were off, "'he slammed the grip of his gun into the man's face.' "'What the hell is this?' I asked as my cams wandered around us. "'Locondo laughed.' "'This is how the other half lives,' he said, gesturing at the plush red carpet, the Rembrandt and Picasso and Warhol on the walls, the wide couches. A huge video screen covered one wall beside a full bar. "'You mean you don't have one, boss?' he added, grinning. He and Ngunu laughed. "'What are we doing down here, Ngunu?' I asked. He looked at me, funny. "'We are not doing anything,' he said, gesturing to me. "'But we,' he said, indicating Locondo and himself, "'are going to shut down the toner stacks by killing the Gulf Stream. "'The archived footage shows my typical brilliance. "'Huh?' "'To Locondo's surly blonde hostage, who was piloting the sub, "'Unguno said, "'Bring up the cameras.' "'The huge video screen flickered alive "'with a view of the murky, dark ocean floor.' Amid huge seabed plants, an enormous robot worm inched along through the muck, suddenly stopping and burrowing into the sediment. The sub drifted above the muddy cloud it had kicked up. "'These are ACT's methane clathrate mining fields,' Gunu explained, glancing at his cell phone briefly. To the blonde man he said, "'Stop! This is the spot!' The blonde prisoner scowled at Lokondo while Ngunu punched more keys on his phone, but did as he was told and stopped the sub. I turned my attention back to the view screen in time to see something large and white briefly flash by sinking past the sub's view cam. The camera followed the movement. A small warhead was sticking into the muck, nose first. More brilliance from me. What the hell? "'No, no,' Gunu said. "'The question you must ask me is, "'how are you going to kill the Gulf Stream? "'Then I can tell you how a nuclear blast "'will liberate all this methane, "'what the tsunami will do to the Greenland glaciers, "'how the sudden melt will kill the Gulf Stream "'and make them shut down,' I nearly choked. "'But you can't kill the Gulf Stream. "'Why not, if they don't mind killing the monsoons?' "'I shook my head.' I mean, you can't do it, physically. One nuke? Gunu laughed. This is the biggest deposit of frozen methane ever found. Plus, who knows how much pure gas underneath. This stuff is amazing, Illingsford. Who knows how much it can outgas. But no, our bomb isn't the only one. Just the first. We have friends who are contributing. They are ready to help crack up the Greenland ice. Easy as that. One phone call is all it will take. I felt sick. Friends? Who? Many, many people want to reign again, brother. People who don't mind if Europe's covered in ice for a while. What? I yelped, my horror clear. Wait, Ngonu, just... Your people have moral high ground right now, and what Follestal said, if you just let me make the documentary. Nobody will care, N'Gonu grumbled. You know that. I leaned on a chair. The room swam before me, and once again I thought of Laura, our last night together in Jaipur, her sorrowful face in the choked off sunlight, light dimmed already by toner from stacks half a continent away, at that time of day when the rose hues of sunset turned the pink painted buildings ominously bone white. How she'd answered my question so simply, so quietly that she had to do the work, that she couldn't go and live in an exurb of Toronto and pretend that the world wasn't falling to pieces, have kids and host dinner parties and ignore the wars and plagues and the broiling, rainless lands burning under the sun, their orphans clutching guns, screaming and running. But what am I supposed to do, I'd asked her. Keep telling people the truth. What else can you do? What else? I looked up on the big screen at the missile in the seabed, at the Chinese script snaking along its side. Maybe it won't kill the Gulf Stream, I said. Ngunu nodded. Yes, but maybe it will. Some people say it might work, and if it does, Agrebi and Salus and Nkese and other scientists, they all say the rains will come back. And everyone in Europe will freeze to death. They can come to Africa for a fee, help fix the mess they made. I nodded. How could I criticize? But what if it doesn't work? I sat down at a coffee table, dizziness worsening. Ngunu shrugged. What can we do but try? So you don't mind being the same as Folistal. I tensed, asking that question, but my instinct had led there. Ngunu's eyes narrowed as he searched carefully for a way to say yes without equating his own brutal calculations to his enemies. Talk to me, I said after a moment, not wanting whatever well-crafted excuse he would formulate. Maybe there's another way, one that doesn't require... So much more, Duluma. Ungunu looked at Lokondo, fear on his face, and in his eyes I could see the other faces staring at him. Everyone he'd ever loved. Everyone he'd ever known. Children who would have played on the shores of Lake Nyasa and grown up to farm fish in those waters, who'd become soldiers instead. Old men, who should have been sitting around drinking Tusker lagers and telling big stories, but had thirsted to death by the roadside instead. His mother, tears on her dry cheeks. The dry bed of Lake Nyasa. The gunfire, the dust storms, his father's blind eyes, all his dead brother's whispering voices. Just talk to me, I said. please. We have footage of Follestal admitting fault. There are new laws up on the books now, ecological harm regulations, corporate liability. I think we can force ACD to rehabilitate Lake Nyasa, to re-stimulate the monsoons. Maybe we've already won. And there he stood, gun in his hand, looking at me with those eyes, the same eyes I'd photographed in that clinic so many years before, afraid, angry, tired. He exhaled slowly. What good can talking do, he said. But he sat down at the table in front of me. I smiled with relief. I almost laughed for joy, thanking Laura silently, and checked my cameras. To this day, I don't know what happened then, except somehow... I knew exactly what to say next.
1: Just like to say a big thank you to God Seller, allowing the Starship over to narrate that story. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Gord Seller. Please don't go out there, as you know. Pinchy, pinchy, selly, selly. Just like to say a big thank you to David Munger for a fantastic narration. David, it is so appreciated. Thank you very much. So that wraps up Starship Sofa's Oral Delights for the night. Hope you enjoyed it. Do join me sad day when hopefully I will be doing a gonzo style show on my trip to France. All the writers there I met and whatever happened, please join me then. Don't forget, narrations, if you want to do a narration for the Starship Sover, please get in touch with me, Starshipsover at gmail.com. And if you want to, so important, keep this Starship Sover running, donations are much appreciated. Two ways you can do that, just drop a donation, go onto the main website and use the button. (laughs) And also, if you want to participate in the monthly program, you get a free audio show as well. Two pounds fifty Monthly donations. I just like to say thank you very much. And don't forget if anyone wants to listen to Laurence Anturo's outro that was cut very very short last week, it is tacked on the back of the outro music to this show. So apologies once again. But until then I would just like to say Good night from me.
2: Survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed?
0: Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Solution Sofa. Evacuation Procedure
6: Shall Shuttle set for watch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1... Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the play. And this is How We Did It, Part 2, or Orson Welles and the Pickle Jar of Doom. He was a cliché, my sound man. There he wasn't. On the phone, Larry Youngberg is a dead line. You speak, he doesn't. You ask, he thinks. You say, hello, he waits. "'Are you there?' you say. Uh "'Uh-huh,' he breathes. "'What?' you say. Mm "'Mm-hmm,' he says, with a touch more breath. "'Well, can you do the show?' you ask. Uh "'Uh-huh,' he says. "'Eventually.' Now, this is the guy who is going to save my ass. He's going to perform the technical magic that will bring the world horror 2002 radio theater production of Larry Santoro's adaptation of Gene Wolfe's The Tree Is My Hat into the world's full hearing. To recap, I had lost my audio guy, my chum Dave Fell, to a work conflict. Oh, cripes. Okay, so the tree as my hat has nobody to do the live multi mix for the audience. It has no one to do the live effects. Not a soul to record the thing, add to that, I know nothing about technical level sound, so I can't do it. I don't have the equipment to do it. I don't know how to ask intelligent questions about how to do it. We are screwed. Now let's back up. I have my kitchen sink script version of Gene's wonderful story. I have a cast. The concept for a cast, anyway. It would not, in fact, be an ensemble until the performance on Saturday, April thirteenth, twenty 2002. That evening would be the first and the only time actors, musicians, effects people, and engineers would be together with an audience at one time to do the show. I had a disc with bits of sound Dave and I had rounded up, tweaked, and burned. I knew what the thing was going to look like for the live audience. I simply had no idea what it would sound like. Now, you have to figure how a show sounds has got to be important for radio drama, right? Right you'd be. And I did not have the oral image of the show. Not yet. I got a break. From time to time, I do public readings, uh, stories, poetry, that sort of thing. This is of interest here only because one frigid, snowy Sunday night, I read at a new spot in Chicago, and there I heard the sound of the show. It came from a guy named Barry Bennett. Now Barry was doing vocals and accompanying himself on a keyboard uh, and an instrument I'd never seen, a device that turned... Percussion into sort of magic thunders, waves, jungle sounds, distance, depth, places you didn't want to go. It was Takanga in a box. Yipes. Milk Baby was and is Barry's musical identity, and I bought a Milk Baby compact disc, and I talked to Barry after the show. Did he ever score a dramatic presentation, I asked. Yes. Would he be interested in doing this one? I described the show. He stared. I mentioned Neil Gaiman. What the Sandman? Neil Gaiman? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Star power. Well, was he Barry available in person on Friday, April thirteenth? Ah, oh, shit, man, nah. Barry had a gig. Shit indeed. Well, could we use a little of a Milk Baby CD for the show? Well, sure, he said. Just give Neil a copy. Well, that was part of the problem solved. Barry's work pointed me toward the kind of sound I was listening for in my imagination. While recorded Milk Baby was better than no Milk Baby at all, I still wanted to have as much of this show as possible created live as it happened. See, I did not want actors to work to fit within a pre-existing score. I wanted our music to riff off the spoken word. I wanted the actors to be fed by the life of the sound. Speaking of live, I also wanted to see Baden's dresser collapse in the night. It's a key moment in the script, if you remember. I wanted to see the sound dude do that hellate chop, that one skillful thwack that breaches the hairy coconut. I wanted to see Hanga weave that hat from those palm trees. The tree is his hat, after all. I also wanted the audience to hear, to not have sound overwhelm the dialogue or have words, drowned effects, or music swallow everything— That meant finding someone who could mix the character mics with the effects mics, with the music mics, with the whatever mics, and make it all blend. So, who the hell does live radio sound anymore? Remarkably, there are people. More remarkably, some of them are in Chicago. Through luck, and through hanging in bars where theater folk hang, I heard about Larry Youngberg, the guy whose quiet ways scared me at the beginning of this little piece. Meeting Larry trounced my fears. He's a pro, and he is a pro for the love of it all. Larry not only engineers radio recreations of classic shows, he knows how to think like a sound. Let me tell a tale. It's a digression, but it's fun. It's October, 1938. The world is on edge. War jitters abound. Orson Welles, age 22, already Broadway's hottest director, already radio's voice of the shadow. Welles has decided to dress up in a sheet and jump out and yell, boo, to all of America. For Halloween, he's planned a dramatic presentation of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds on radio's Mercury Theater on the Air. You've probably heard it. Howard Cox's adaptation uh, presents the tale as an escalating series of we-interrupt-this-program kind of news bulletins. Explosions observed on the planet Mars, Martian space vehicles falling to Earth in New Jersey, elsewhere, Martian cylinders unscrew in their steaming pits, monstrous machines of war emerge, weapons rise, populations are laid waste to, people are herded, the horror is unstoppable. It worked. Panic ensued. Emergency defense plans were activated. State militias were mobilized. People fled New York, elsewhere. A few, preferring a swift end to living death under Martian domination, attempted suicide. Prior to the broadcast, the CBS sound man was stymied. What does it sound like, a Martian cylinder unscrewing? Heavy, sure. Crusted, half-fused by heat, half-buried in a vast pit, the news guy says. It's echoey, yeah, sure. Alien war machines coming, as it were, slowly to life, the sound originating from something strange, foreign, yet something familiar, dark, fraught. At lunch, in a nearby deli... Still thinking, the sound man noticed the restaurant counterman opening a huge jar of pickles. The lid scraped, the sound grated. He bought the empty jar. It needed more. It needed echo, maybe. Resonance, it says, half-buried in a vast pit on the page. He tried the men's room just down the hall from the studio. That was better. Wells had used this place before, its tiled vastness provided echoing footfalls and hollowed the whispers in the Palace of Versailles and other such places in previous Mercury Theater shows. Opening the lid in one of the stalls, ah, yeah, that was it. Well, that was nearly it. To top it off, the sound man hung his microphone inside the toilet bowl. Ah, yes, there it was. half buried in a vast pit resonance. So, know this. When you listen to the War of the Worlds, and when the Martian machine begins to open slowly, ominously, it is a pickle jar unscrewing in a toilet at the CBS studio, going out live that terrified all of America. I wanted you to know with what detail sound designers consider the character of the effects they make. The long lacunae in Larry's conversations came from that great silence-bringer thought. You see, Larry thinks before he speaks. So, can you do it, I ask? Pause, 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 pause. Larry? Yes. "'Then he'd go away. He'd work it out. He'd bring back a physical solution. "'Could he mix the show? Could he do live effects, cue and run recorded effects at the same time?' "'Hmm,' he said, then went away. "'He came back with the solution. Randy Larson was the solution.' Randy is Larry's polar opposite, round, effusive, jovial. Randy was the guy who slammed doors, opened Coke cans, wove hats from trees, and wielded helites in Mortal combat with coconuts. They divided the labors, Randy would do the live effects, Larry would engineer the show, Cue the recorded sounds, balance the three character mics, effects mics, and whatever else mics. He'd get the show out to the audience, adjusted such that rolling surf doesn't drown the actors. And between them, they had the mixers, mics, CD players, wind machines, door frames, crash boxes, all the tools of the old, old trade. He didn't have a helite, but... Well, I was in rapture. In the meantime, I rehearsed with the Chicago cast, me filling in for missing actors, gods, females, males, whatever. And I was still wishing recorded music was fine, but I wanted someone to do ambience, create and riff on the living reality of the actors, actors who were there in the moment in front of the audience. Then there was Eric. Through some of her film contacts, a friend of mine put me onto an organization of sound and music creators who work locally in theater, film, and other performance media. I contacted them, and they recommended I talk with a guy named Eric Leonardson. When I heard Eric's CD, Radio Reverie in the Waiting Place, the show's full sound envelope fell into place. Eric created music on a homemade... I don't... what to call it. Eric calls it a springboard. You'll have to picture this. Uh, a three-foot length of, say, two-by-six. Through either end, eight-inch eye bolts protrude. Between these iron loops, he stretches springs, rubber bands, various sounding, stretchy things. And when stroked with a cello bow or plucked or struck, they resonate. Onto the wood may also be attached various hard wood or metal tongues. When beaten, they vibrate. On the long side of the board, he sometimes attaches an old oven rack. Yes, an old oven rack. Sometimes a coffee can lid. And when struck, plucked, bowed, beaten, these also make interesting sounds. And that's it. A contact microphone is epoxied beneath the thing and then the line of that is run through an amp and a mixer and electronics are added. They shape and shade the resulting sounds. They introduce echo, loop, reverb, whatever. And in performance, Eric rests the instrument on an aluminum walker. How to describe the springboard sounds? Well, I don't have to because you've heard it. Call it a clockwork theremin, a 19th-century synthesizer. Like thunder and darkness in the air, like drowning in a whirlpool, it's music from a place we've never been, and a perfect complement to Mil- Milk Baby's recorded score. Google Eric Leonardson. Go, listen to his MP3 files. I called Eric. I asked shyly, hoping, uh, would he let us use some of his work? Oh, yeah, well, sure. You see, though, I was hoping... Yeah? I, I thought I'd like to do the show, like, live. Oh? Yes? Yes! So, there it was. Almost the whole team. Then another friend, Richard Engling, a, a writer friend had asked me to do a reading from his latest novel, Jazz Beast, at the convention, and he wanted me to read a section to a drum accompaniment, which he would provide. Drum, I said. Drum? Well, tit for tat, buddy. I'll do yours, you do mine, okay? And there we were. Gene's team. Eric came to a read-through at my place. He jammed on the words. We talked. I explained some of the ideas, the concepts. He worked out a few riffs. We altered them, founded ways of building on them. We gathered again, all of us who were in Chicago at Eric's studio on a Saturday afternoon one week before the con, We ran the show, ran recorded and live effects. We had Richard's drums, the live music blended with recorded Milk Baby and the actors, me voicing in Neil's, Trish's, and our singer's parts. After two runs and a few cuts, remember the mantra, under an hour, under an hour, we had the thing where it needed to be. It was under an hour, and it was spooky, and I think chilling, and I know it was quite lovely. It was Gene's world come alive. Oh, by the way, Randy and Larry, they found the helite. They'd thought through the sound of a blade cutting through. First, hard coconut husk, then soft, damp interior meat. They built a sort of wooden vise to hold a large apple. Above the apple, they clamped an eighth-inch slice of wood. They tried various kinds of wood as a dully-honed piece of strap iron whacked down through the strip and into the apple pine it was i believe that sounded most like coconut husk listen to the performance again coconut husk wet coconut meat one hard thwack at the con on the day of the show we worked for two hours with neil we ran through the two women's parts for liz manville Greason, the singer and trish kasich just before showtime and in an incredible streak of luck Gay and Wilson became available to do the introduction, so that is, in fact, the real, genuine Gay and Wilson you hear at the beginning. Listen to it. Uh, listen to the whole thing again, if you like. Near the end, Trish has this blood-curdling scream as the shark god—oh, you know, you've heard it. She screams loud. It wasn't until that night—Trish didn't tell me until afterward—that that was the first time— she'd ever had to scream anywhere for any reason. Well, she did good. So did everyone. And thanks for listening.